You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance. I'm glad for the opportunity to speak to you again. I wish that Kevin was able to be with us. I can sympathize some way with Kevin because I had to retire from preaching because of voice problems and those issues, and you want to do it, and you want to do your work, and physically you can't. So I can sympathize with Kevin, and we do want to keep him in our prayers and hope that soon, somewhere along the line, there'll either be a solution or he'll at least come out of it, give his family strength. I wonder if we realize that deep down inside of us, there's something that causes us to get up on a Sunday morning, come to our worship building, and there raise our voices in praise to God in our songs, in our communion service, and in our preaching. We have an affinity for God, buried sometimes deep within and yet sometimes coming to the surface. In a class this morning in the book of Romans, we talked about the fact that God is so very much a part of our thinking and so fundamental to what we are as our Christian life, whether it be our worship service or when we leave this place and go our separate ways and go through the week ahead of us. There's a little voice within us that tells us that we want to know more and more about God. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, and in the middle of verse 6, is this little statement. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. That he is. It goes on, there's more, but that statement, we must believe that he is, that he exists, that he is real as you and I are real. When John begins to write his gospel, and in his introduction in verse 18, he talks about Christ, and he tells us this, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he explains him. Think about that. There are four gospels. Why four? Why so many? Because we want to know as much as we can about God. And the only way we have of doing that, according to John, is to look at Jesus, at the actions, and they tell us something about God. There is in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, a very special section. We're going to take one chapter out of that section this morning for our study. Each one of us needs to read from Isaiah, the 40th chapter, to chapter 53. You'd do better to read it with a pen and a ruler and underline what you come to as you come to various statements about God, about his dealing with people, about who he is. This little section from chapter 40 through 53, when Jesus is introduced in prophecy, is so full, so rich 
in things about God. And so I want this morning to take one single chapter, chapter 40, verses 9 through 31, and talk to you a little bit about what Isaiah tells his people about God. It's very relevant to us and what we know about God. I hope that you have your own Bible or in some way you can follow along. I'm an old, old kind of preacher, and therefore I don't have anything on the screen for you to look at. You're just going to have to deal with me. And so we turn to Isaiah chapter 40, and we come to verse 9, and it gives us the title for our study. If you look at the very last line of verse 9, you'll see this. Here is your God. It's an introduction. Here is your God. And then he will begin to describe certain things about God, things that will make our lives want to even more, more and more about him. And then I want you to notice before we leave verse 9, that twice in verse 9, the writer says that good news is coming. Good news is coming. We know that in the Gospels, Jesus preached good news, the gospel that saves. And so now with you, just come with me along as we go through this 40th chapter and we pick out some lessons that are so very relevant to where we're at, spiritually speaking, in our minds and in our hearts. And so I direct you to read with me verses 10 and 11. And I want you as we read to see the uniqueness of these two verses together and how they are completely different sides of what God is like. In verse 10, Behold the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms he'll gather the lambs, carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing lambs. Those two passages of Scripture. Look at verse 10. What picture of God is there in verse 10? A mighty power. If you drop down to verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket, are regarded as a speck of dust in the scale. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. There is a power in God that is in verse 10, and we'll notice it another place in our reading. But then I want you to come down to verse 11. And it's a completely different picture of God. Look at verse 11 again. We like this verse. The, th the idea of God as all-powerful, we can accept. We must accept. And yet we like the picture in verse 11 of a gentle, quiet God. And we look at Christ, and he portrays that very idea, that very picture. Look at verse 11 again. Like a shepherd, he'll tend his flock. By the way, in John chapter 11, John will describe 
Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. I'm the good shepherd. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus, who says, I am the good shepherd. But then again in verse 11, in his arms he'll gather the lambs. We're the lambs. We're the lambs in the New Testament. Christ is the chief shepherd. But here, he gathers in his arms the lambs and carries them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. In the prayer that Jack led us for in a, in a moment ago, so many that we know about, members of our congregation, friends of members of our congregation, struggling with health issues. And when ultimately we come to whatever help we can imagine is to pray to the God. And verse 11 is a picture of the God that we pray to. He will hold us in the hollow of his hands. It's a beautiful picture of God. Strong, but then gentle. But then gentle. Watching basketball now, the National Leagues, big individuals. Football, huge individuals. And every once in a while, they will picture one of these big linemen on the sideline holding a little child in his hands, his little child. It's a picture of God. He's big. He's huge. And yet he's the shepherd. And he holds the ewe, the small lamb, in his hands. But that's not the only picture that Isaiah wants us to see. And so come down to verse 14 with me. Or pardon me, verse 12. Now here's another picture of God. And there are certain words here that I want you to focus on. And because I'm going to ask you, what picture do they show you of God? Verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by measure, weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Those words, measured, marked off, calculated, weighed, a balance of scales, a pair of scales. What do they picture? They picture the creator. They picture a builder. You know, I thought, and we have a clear sky out there. We so easily see Mount Adams. And we're amazed at its beauty and the snow-covered mountains around us. And we think about this passage. God used a pair of scales to decide how tall they would be. That's the picture here. We go back for just a moment outside of Isaiah to the book of Psalms, or Proverbs, pardon me. And I want to read a little bit from Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 22. And the reason I want to read this is because it's a beautiful picture of creation. There's someone who is not measured or not named here, but is named earlier. It's wisdom. God is talking about 
wisdom standing beside him as he goes through the motions that Isaiah describes. Listen to verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established, from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. When there was no depth, I was brought forth. When there was no spring abounding with water, before the mountains were settled, before I was brought forth. And what was brought forth was wisdom. How deep should the oceans be? How tall should the mountains be? And wisdom was with God. Verse 26, While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set the sea in its boundary, so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundation of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing in all before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth. It's a beautiful picture. But now come back to Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah pictures God using the scales, deciding how things should be. And then there's one more verse I want you to look at. It's in Isaiah. It is the most profound verse in all of that reading. Come to Isaiah chapter 45. You know, evidence, Josh McDowell wrote a book some time back, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now I want you to read with me from Isaiah chapter 45, and if I can underscore it, verse 18. Isaiah 45 and verse 18. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Think about what we have discovered through science. We put men on the moon to walk. What did they find? A waste place. And they were glad to come back to where? Scientists talk about going to other planets. And what will they find? A waste place. When you look around you, the existence of God is all around us. It's a profound passage of Scripture that you and I can measure on our own this very day with all of science has shown us. It comes down to this fact that our earth is a place of habitation. Out there, we have discovered nothing but places that are a waste. And everything that is needed there would have to come from here. You don't need to just have your Bibles to know about God. Throughout the Bible, nature itself is one of the most powerful evidences for the existence of God. Years, generations later, one more time out of the book of Isaiah, come to Romans chapter 1 and look at verse 20. Now this is generations later. 
to a people who thought they knew everything. And Paul will write this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Now look at it again. Clearly seen by what? By what has been made. The next time you look at Mount Adams, the next time you look at the other mountains around us, think of this passage. They're there. They're not going away. They've been there for as long as man has been on this earth. Our young people need to understand that the greatest evidence for the existence of God is what they see with their own eyes. You cannot deny it. You cannot deny it. It's here. I have a book entitled uh, God in a Present World, I believe, is the title. Individual was in New York City as a preacher for a number of years. And his book is based upon uh, conversations he had with various individuals who are searching for God. And invariably, they do not want a God who will tell them what they ought to do and what they ought to be like. They want to go it on their own. And so drop down with me back in Isaiah chapter 40 to verse 18. As long back as Isaiah, we have this. To whom then will you liken God? Interesting question. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, a silversmith fashions it of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. You know, I'm reminded of Gideon in the book of Judges. Uh, the land was overcome with idolatry, the worship of idols. They had an idol called Baal. And they had captured at one time uh, from the temple of God, God's table of, of blessing. And they had brought it back and set it beside Baal. Got up in the morning and went in. And of all things, Baal had fallen flat on his face. Well, they set him back up and asked, who do you think had torn him down? And the finger was pointed at Gideon. But the next morning, they went in, and Baal had fallen over again. But this time, his head had been broken off, and his hands were broken. And they decided that maybe they didn't need the ark of God with them. Maybe they ought to send it back where it came from. And that they tried to do. In our world, we are so blessed to know who God is and to know him as the lamb, to know him as the master builder, to know him not as a tree that will not rot, but that we can carve out 
are God, and the rest will burn for firewood. How sad. The people to this very day are trying to make some kind of God that they can serve on their own choices. When the Apostle Paul, in the New Testament, came to the city of Athens, he soon found a city fully given over to idolatry. And this is hundreds of years after Isaiah. They were practicing this in Isaiah. Now they're practicing it in Athens, the city of knowledge. And the Apostle Paul sees an idol, an idol to an unknown God. Lest they see it, leave somebody out, they had an unknown God idol. And so Paul preached to them about the God who made the world, the God who made the world. And you know some of them, Luke records, listened to what Paul had to say. We have a lot of people in our world today who have an idol to an unknown God. He doesn't do them much good. Our God does us much good. But then we must hasten on. And so come with me now to verse 18. After we have read verse 18 through 20, and the picture of creating either with covering with gold and silver to the best of our ability, or since we're poor, hacking down a tree and having a craftsman make us a god out of that part and hoping it doesn't rot. We come to verse 21. And in response to verse 18 through 20, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretched out the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the ju judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely have they took stock into the ground. He merely blows on them and they wither. And the storm carries them away like the stubble. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. And see who has created these stars, the one who leads them forth in a host of numbers. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. And so you go back to verse 21 and those questions. Do you not know? Are you just this ignorant that you assume that this idol that you have made out of a tree is your God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? And now I want you to drop down to verse 27. And here's the response. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, 
and justice do me escapes the notice of my God. The answer to verse 21, I'll hide. I'll hide from God. What did Adam and Eve learn about hiding from God? It's a hard road to hoe. When God found them, and he knew he would find them, they had excuses. But nevertheless, in Isaiah's time, the idea is we'll hide from God. The God of verse 22 through 26, you don't hide from. You don't hide from that God. You don't fool yourself by saying, he doesn't know. He has forgotten to see. That's not the God that we serve. But then there's a conclusion to all of this. There's a conclusion. What does God want us to know about him? We saw it in verse 11, a shepherd who holds a lamb. But now come with me to verse 28 through the end of the chapter. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. To him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youth may grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles, they will run and not get tired. They will walk and not be weary. That's what God wants us to know about him. That he makes a difference in the way we live our lives. The very knowledge of him, the very understanding that you will find if you go on from chapter 40 to 53, you'll find a God who wants the best for us. And so Isaiah begins this little section that is so meaningful with the picture of a lamb in the master's hands, a shepherd who is so easy in his handling of the lamb of which we are. And he closes out by wanting the best for us. That kind of a God deserves our worship, deserves to go with us on a Monday, on a Tuesday, on through our lives. Because as he is with us, we're the better for it. Somewhere along the line, in this period of time, we need to understand as much as we can about God our world is forgetting God. If you can't hold it in your hand and punch a button, it does you no good. And then there is God. And we can only guess. We can only see little glimpses. But he's there. He's there every time I look out at the mountains. Every time I look around at the world. Every time I look at you. I see God, 
because we're made in his image. What a blessing we have to know God as much as we can. To know that according to John, if we really need to know more, it's there in the actions of his son. And so I'm encouraging you to go on through from chapter 40 through 41 and following till you get to chapter 53 and you'll recognize it's about Christ. But between those two points, you'll find so much rich information about the God that we worship, the God that has brought us together this morning, the God that will go with us out the door to whatever awaits us this year, this week, this day. If there's some way that we can help you this morning, whether it's in your quest to know about God, what he wants from you, someone will be standing here when I sit down. We'll want to help you in our prayers, in our efforts to help you understand God's word, to understand God. And if you're a Christian, don't ever doubt that when you walk out the door, God will go with you. Bless us, each one of us, in his care. Shall we stand? Shall we stand?